Ready? Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> That's all I, I, I don't get. It. I don't get it either. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to I Don't Get It, a podcast about performances in Edmonton. I'm Fonda. And I'm Paul. And we are uh, proud to be part of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered Powered by by ATB. How are you, Fonda? I'm doing pretty good. I'm cold now because it was spring for like 10 minutes and now it's not anymore. It sure isn't. (laughs) It's back to lukewarm cold. Um, but, But such is the way in Alberta. Yeah. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Paul. It's been a little while. It truly has. I have been doing and facilitating a lot of teenage improv and now that's done. And so so here we are seeing stuff. Yes. Congratulations on the Wildfire Festival and, and happy and happy freedom to you. Thank you. I'm mostly caught up on sleep now. Right. Um, what's going on, Fun? What is happening for the podcast? Right. Well, well, we, well, we just came out of a documentary film, which is sort of like a first for the podcast. But we're um, first. What I wanted to throw to you is um, earlier this week, I went and had a, a did a very special trip to the Art Gallery of Alberta. Oh yeah, yeah. Not just um, you. I would say you got inside the art would be how I describe what happened. Yes, that is that is exactly what happened. And 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 for that and for that getting real inside the art, um, uh, our our uh, frequent guest Colleen Fian joined me. And um, well, well, how about we just throw to that now? Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening to I Don't Get It. Uh, my name is Fonda. I'm Colleen, and I'm Lindsay. And, and Lindsay, where are we right now? Right now, we're together in a hot tub in an exhibition at the Art Gallery of Alberta. And, and well, what is this hot tub doing here? <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. Um, this is a, a project by artist duo um, Cindy Baker and Ruth Cuthand. Um, so we presented them um, with the, I guess, question or situation of the end of the world Um, and as sort of everything seems kind of horrible right now from pandemics (laughs) um, to you know climate crisis to stock market crash exactly exactly and so you know we wanted to put together an exhibition that sort of was artist reply or artist response in the face of these sort of tumultuous times. Um, And so Cindy and Ruth um, took our sort of question of, you know, what would you need or what would you do um, when being faced with the end of the world? And their reply was, well, the end of the world is now. um, And what we would do is what we're doing now, (laughs) which is um, quite a lot of denial and just sort of carrying on as you will. Um, And for, you know, people in places like Edmonton, we would sit in a hot tub, buy a new hot tub, put it in your backyard, hang out with your friends, uh, (laughs) continue to consume and live pretty much the same as we're used to. That's interesting. I I think I would spend the end of the world in a hot tub. There might there might be more wine, but you know. <laughs> I would tend to agree, especially in this cold climate. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
Um, well, so what are the, the hot tub is not the only thing in this room that we're in. What are some of the other images that we have in here? Yeah, so the hot tub is really the kind of central point, and I think each of the other elements in the exhibition are kind of continually calling back to the hot tub. Um, so over us here um, is a light piece and so there's also you know there's lots of like flashing lights and sort of like sexy looking things um but above us here is um ruth cuthan's um diagram of anthrax um and so you know it, it looks very beautiful and it kind of has this maybe almost like kind of 80s kind of chic aesthetic um but then you realize what you're looking at is the you know cells of anthrax. Um, so one of the kind of touchstones for the entire project was Cindy and Ruth coming across um, this um, discovery of thousands upon thousands, like something bonkers, like 30,000 caribou dead under the Arctic ice. And so this was discovered in like 60s 70s um, and so they sort of found this like large group of, of caribou under the ice and they bored through the ice and took a sample and realized that these caribou were completely filled with anthrax and the conclusion at the time was yes this is horrible but it's under the ice and so thank goodness we will never have to worry about cleaning that up or dealing with it because it's, you know, kind of safely contained under ice. Um, but as we know, um, that's not really the case anymore. And so it kind of starts you thinking about, you know, what else is under the ice? You know, it's probably not anthrax that's going to, you know, do away with all of us, but probably something that we have, we don't even know what it is. Um, and it could be under the Arctic ice. It could be somewhere else and so it kind of like alludes to not only everything that we do know and that we're also mostly actively ignoring but everything that we don't know as well um and so you know there's a, also a kind of this flashing oil derrick behind you yeah um, there's like a lot of a lot of <laughs> kind of like it's like a neon light element it looks like it could be moved to the 104th street uh neon museum after yeah, this yeah totally. cartoonish like i yeah <laughs> it's funny but it makes me it makes me feel lighthearted which is probably not the i i i don't know it feels like it could be a vegas hotel room i don't know man <laughs> <laughs> or like some like fantasy land hotel you yeah. know the fantasy land hotel theme rooms i feel like this could be one of them. Yeah, we could just move this to West End and it would like completely fit in. Yeah. And for the first time it will generate a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about this woo on the other wall over here? It's 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 a, a, a like a sign like a light sign that spells out woo in sort of like a speech bubble. Yeah, so the the idea is that, you know, we're kind of, we would, you know, face the end of the world in sort of this kind of like carefree um, way with what it says, which is woo. But the letters also come from the old uh, Wolko sign. And so it's not only this idea of um, 
consumption, um, but also, you know, ideas of, of collapse, and of course, we'll close no longer. Um, and so we start to think about how our consumption sort of plays into the economy, um, and how the economy is really determining um, a lot of our climate crisis. And so how all of these things are kind of intertwined. Yeah, well, I knew that font looked familiar. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting, but back to the anthrax light projection, like I, when we first walked in here, because earlier on in the exhibit, like when you're walking through, there's the other nests that you see. And mm-hmm. one of them we were sort of talking about it is a picture of Edmonton in the height of when we had all those um, forest fires last yeah. summer. And I don't know about you guys, but I just, like just, it's a picture of the yellow orange burning sky. And, mm-hmm. and it just, just that snapshot like was enough to take me back. And mm-hmm. I had, I had two young children. I have, I had a, I had a, 18 month old and I was pregnant at the time so we just like holed up in my house with like a air purifier anyway mm-hmm. so it was very so it was a really uh, scary time for me but um, but then coming in and you see this anthrax uh, light and it's all these small dots of light but it just made me think like oh it's like the air the air particles mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sort of polluting in so I guess anthrax could be that too but yeah, yeah so it's it's a menacing it's a menacing thing like it's interesting even though it's like pink and sort of cheerful that all of these little particles look like they're floating they're you know gonna kill you right <laughs> yeah, um just a sort of i guess on a practical level what does it take for the aga to install something like this <laughs> for you know i mean this hot tub is here until may so yeah. so months at a time and yeah change rooms to, and change rooms yeah. to go with it yeah, yeah. No shower, so we could avoid that. But um, yeah, it was a, a whole new kind of logistical thing for us. Um, but I think that's really the the kind of fun and exciting and challenging thing about working with contemporary artists and artists like Cindy and Ruth who have these kind of big visions. Um, you know, to really kind of like rally everybody together because um, you know to get the hot tub. Here, you know, it takes really working with every single other department at the gallery, not just the people that are responsible for exhibitions, but, you know, really working closely with facilities people. And so, yeah, it was, it was kind of a, a fun challenge, but also really nice to, to have to work really closely with all of our other colleagues here. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so tell us about some of the other nests that we can see in the exhibit, too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there is um, several other nests. Um, one of them where you sort of first walk in, um, it's a large um, star suspended in the space and it is completely like dripping with ribbons like completely covered um, in them and so this is uh, Nikki Little and Bruno Canadian and what they were wanting to to examine with the end of the world is sort of their responsibilities within their indigenous communities not only to their ancestors but also to their sort of I guess you would say future ancestors and so thinking of themselves as kind of this conduit um, and what they can do for um, subsequent generations for their children um and there is Luann Martineau has a, a giant uh, knitting woman. <laughs> and so it's this um, large sculpture, um, and in, embedded inside the sculpture is a knitting machine. And so when the exhibition is open, it's sort of just continually knitting away um, and making this 
cord. And then this, you know, large woman uh, is birthing out this uh, knit cord. And as the exhibition goes on, we're kind of uh, sewing that cord all together and making a, a large rug. Um, and that exhibition or that piece will actually travel to Montreal after and they'll take also the rug. So a part of that piece is that this rug, um, which is maybe right now like roughly the size of this top of this hot tub, <laughs> that it would kind of perpetually just be growing and growing and growing and maybe, you know, someday it would, you know, start to like take over the entire room and the entire gallery. And Yeah, yeah. yeah we on the way in we saw a little bit of an example of the rug. It's sort of built in a spiral, so mm-hmm. it fits e- even, the, even the shape of the tub too. It's like kind of, <laughs> it'll continue to like spiral out mm-hmm. as it grows. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the... The other pieces I notice uh, are very tactile, much like this one. Mm-hmm. So, um, how the, is, is our sensory kind of mass ex- exhibitions like this common? Has has AGA done this sort of thing before? Um, maybe not something that's like so interactive. Um, we do like to incorporate like you know some interactive components into our exhibitions. Um, but yeah, maybe not to this extent. And I think that there's, you know, something of this theme of sort of our kind of collective preparation for the end of the world and then what comes next that kind of lends itself to this participatory sort of thing. And in the knitting room, there is also um, a station so you can kind of sit alongside our, our giant knitting woman and, and do your own hand knitting and, and contribute to different blankets and things that are being produced. Knit as she births more <laughs> yarn for you. <laughs> well, that particular one is quite interesting because you notice when you come through the there's the there's the ribbon tent. There's the hot tub. There's the uh, forgive me, but it, it looks um, like a oh shoot, it's the like the, the wood the teepee structure. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. And so presumably all structures that you would go inside mm-hmm. and just just sort of forgive me, but nest within. And then the, but the knitting woman, it's like I walked in and I was like, well, where do I go? <laughs> <laughs> so but this 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 thought concept of the, of a of something being knit all around you as opposed to just mm-hmm. you know somewhere to go in yeah. for shelter, right? Yeah. It's yeah. such a it's such a different idea. It was really yeah. neat. Yeah, and I think one of the the really interesting things that um, kind of Luann took from our question um, was that, you know, as an artist, she doesn't necessarily, of course, like have all the answers. And I think it's pretty common that we kind of go to artists with these like huge questions of, you know, what do we do in the face of the end of the world? And and I think one of her um, responses to that was, well, you know, it's not just me. <laughs> like I don't have all the answers. And so what she wanted to create was this thing that sort of grows around you like as you say that you know you kind of if you were to come back like this nest would sort of get larger and larger and take up more of the space and you also have the opportunity to kind of contribute some to that knitting as well mm-hmm. well something to do presumably at the end of the world like you yeah. got to keep yourself busy exactly well and then there's but there's the so nest as a as a noun but there, it's, there's the idea of nesting as a verb too and that makes me think of activity like knitting and mm. sort of you know like making things so that you can make home or make make things more comfortable mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah so how can people come in and experience like they can't people can't just walk in off the street oh the jets have started <laughs> <laughs> 
it. How can people, um, so how can people experience this exhibit? You can't really just walk in off the street and jump into the hot tub, can you? Well, if you're prepared, you can. <laughs> um, so you can use the hot tub. Um, you can go online and you can book a spot or um, you can take your chances and just show up as long as you have a, a bathing suit and a towel and as long as the hot tub is open, um, you're more than welcome to hop in. Great, wow, and it's, and it's open. What else is running at the AGA now? What else can people see? It's great, look at that. Yeah. Or, just or. They cut the power. <laughs> It's happening. It's a coronavirus <laughs> lockdown. Nobody's leaving. <laughs> um, yeah, so you can uh, come and have a look at the next exhibition. Uh, we also have a um, exhibition with a contemporary Alberta uh, Alberta artist from Medicine Hat, Roy Cossey. He has a show um, that's just opened, uh, and you also have a Rembrandt show um, that also just opened up. And there is um, an Icons exhibition, and then on our main floor also. Um, some works from our collection. Great. Well, well, thanks so much for having us and for and for uh, indulging us because we wanted to do the interview about the exhibit, but to you know take advantage of the hot tub as well. It was <laughs> really nice. So thanks very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. We'll we'll leave it at that now. I think actually it's time for an ad. Artists are often underserved at banks because they don't fit a typical profile. Theater professionals like Michael and Nicole Bradley kept getting turned down when they applied for a mortgage. Then they found ATB's branch for arts and culture. The branch offers a different approach to banking and lending that caters to the unique situations of people working in creative industries. Now Michael, Nicole, and their son Luke have a home they love. To see more of their inspiring story, visit atb.com slash bradleys and visit atb.com slash thebranch to find out how ATB's branch for arts and culture can support your career in the arts. So what do we want to talk about first? What's, uh, should we talk about Girl in the Machine? Yeah, let's talk about Girl in the Machine. So, well, well what is it? This is, this is kind of like a new interesting thing. Sure. Um, so, uh, so we went to a play. It's called Girl in the Machine. Um, uh, but it was uh, it was at the Telus World of Science, which um, I didn't grow up here, so I've been a handful of times, but I didn't have like the childhood memories um, there. Like the field trips and yeah. like packed lunch in the planetarium. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but the show uh, was staged in the dome. Um, do you want to talk about the dome a little bit? Yeah. So the Ziedler Dome is the planetarium, uh, also known as like the big old star room. Uh, mm-hmm. so so it has a 360-degree dome projection. The, um, the 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 seating is all in the round, so you can sit anywhere, and uh, the projection is, um, is is the same. Uh, and the and the seating all actually also reclines, so that you can view all the way up and around a little bit better. Um, what was cool about Girl in the Machine is that they set. Um, there's a small stage in the uh, in the center of the round that is sort of at you know like eye level if you're sitting upright, uh, and and then the it's a two-hander play um, about uh, Polly and Owen, yeah, and uh, and 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 technology and anxiety and and I, I remember walking out of thinking, man, there was a lot in that script, Paul. <laughs> there sure was for like a seventy-minute um, um, no intermission show. They packed packed a lot in. It's 
it's a script written by uh, Steph Smith, who is an Olivier Award-winning playwright. Um, uh, I think most of the comparisons um, that I've seen to the show have been referencing Black Mirror. Mm-hmm. Twilight Zone, I think, also fits. Yeah. Um, things like that. But it is. It's sort of um, uh, Polly, who's played by uh, Beth Graham, is sort of a, a high, um, uh, a a very um, corporate t- sort of lawyer, um, very high-strung, um, and her her partner is a nurse. And one day he brings home this technology, this this thing called black box, which is supposed to help with anxiety and relaxation. Um, and we got to the dome's sort of projection capabilities were to use because we got to see, um, as uh, Polly puts this on, um, this sort of blissful um, uh, serenity that that she drifts into in that. But it is not all it appears to be as often happens in these situations no no technology is not all it's cracked up to be (laughs) um yeah so she um polly puts on this device that plays a program that uh, essentially um the the crux of it ends up being that the program starts taking people's minds out of their bodies well i mean uh they it asks if they want to go yeah but that that starts to become more and more appealing do you want to live forever this is the this is the question that the play actually opens with before any of the action even starts you hear this uh wonderful um uh, this this very sort dramatic dramatic voice over the voiceover of black box is um done with by patricia darbazy um so you know you hear you hear this voice ask the question and then the play begins um and at first it seems sort of like very almost conventional two-hander you know she's working a lot they're talking about having kids they're talking about um careers and all this kind of stuff what i felt was interesting about the relationship is that um uh owen being a nurse was so concerned with the physical body and the physical experience of being human of Mm -hmm. being a person um and feeling things in the world and polly um because she has all of this pressure and stress and anxiety um is craving this this sort of blissful escape that black box offers her um and it ends up, you know, the the way that the projection uh, shows what black box looks like is it goes all the way from like the feeling of flying to being in a kind of weird forest to being in sort of this kind of like weird, surreal heaven, I guess. Gray cloud yeah. zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I thought, um, uh, like, I liked, uh, I like science fiction generally, but I thought this one, like, um, took what is, like, a very, um, pretty simple premise. Like, you can sort of see where it's going pretty quick, but it sort of explored a lot of that, sort of through the dynamic of Owen and Polly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought Beth Graham and uh, Michael Tan uh, were both sort of very, uh, very grounding forces in their roles. They did great sort of in, mm-hmm. in exploring these really big ideas of, like, what does it mean to be alive? Um, and and to look at some of those things of like, well, what um, as the world starts to um, be impacted by this in bigger and bigger ways, mm-hmm. um, uh, how how it sort of looks at their dynamic and and these sort of ideas of yeah, the physical world and uh, and bliss and these sort of like. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, concepts. Uh, yeah, I like that it sort of like dug into a lot of, of different things in its in its relatively short runtime. Yeah, there was a really I felt very interesting juxtaposition, a very tactile juxtaposition between this sort of um, uh, kind of like the weird psychological glitching and trouble that Polly is having contrasted by these moments where 
um, Owen just wants to touch her. Like, they just want to actually physically share, you know, like, an intimate or, like, physical moment. And it was, yeah, I I just felt that it was really, the the play is just made up of a a lot of short, very short scenes. Mm -hmm. Um, And the blocking, I felt, really lent actually really well to the progression of time through the play. Which is happening in the round. It's sort of Mm -hmm. staged in the middle of everything. Yeah, so you see them, like, you uh, they don't really often go off stage very much one like often Polly is on stage almost the entire time I think Um, but uh, yeah I I just felt that it um, it it clipped along very fast but it all also lent to just sort of like this descent of this couple into like actually like quite a you know what could be typically sort of just like the natural arc of like a bad breakup. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this like, um, it, it felt so binary in some ways. Like, their ways increasingly as the play went on, uh, went on sort of had this like um, glitchy, as you said, sort of computery sort of side of like, oh, these two things are just not computing. These two things are not connecting. These two mm-hmm. visions of, of, of this world or this issue or this thing that's happening are, um, are, different and like seemingly irreconcilable and like no matter how much both of them try um they're sort of stuck in these um in this loop or this like spiral i guess is a better way this deepening spiral yeah yeah what the the other thing that i found really um sort of fascinating about the plot was the um the the influence of the government Mm -hmm. so they have these things called citizen chips implanted Mm -hmm. in their arms um and uh the at one point, the the government recognizes something about black box and influences the citizenships and everyone to become incompatible or, you know, right, it, yeah. it doesn't work the same way. In any case, the what I found interesting is, yeah, it just there. These things are happening, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a sense of their protests going on outside. Mm-hmm. There's these very human things that are happening, but we're sort of like. Um, uh, one of these characters is experiencing these and trying to convey the importance of these, and this other one is sort of like cutting off from a lot of that and detaching from from all of that. Yeah, and that like there's, you know, we're, we live in a world where technology is progressing so quickly that regulations don't have time to catch up. Um, or if they or if they try, maybe they're not doing quite the right thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, it, there almost there was almost a car accident just right outside us right now. <laughs> so you're putting this in a car. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I thought that was kind of a like a good um, a, a very interesting way to turn the plot a bit and and also kind of like help the action along uh, in a in a very dramatic way. Yeah, so like a very cool experience, I thought. Um, like uh, I don't, we don't see a lot of science fiction in theater, and I think those worlds can be very compatible. I think especially with something like this, where it's kind of like a Twilight Zoney mm-hmm. um, descent or a Black Mirror sort of look at the world we live in, and just like something that's like. Uh, it's science fiction, but also it's like not that far removed. Like mm-hmm. pretty much all of the like sci-fi sort of elements are like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, that makes sense in this world we live in. Yeah, and the production, um, the production is an independent production, but it was by Bustle and Beast, mm-hmm. directed by Brenly Charco. Um, and I, uh, I read about Bustle and Beast a little bit. Their mandate is to perform or to produce um, female-fronted and female female-led um, production. So I thought that was kind of cool. Great. Watch out for Bustle and Beast. More stuff. 
stuff. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, we are recording this outside of the Garneau Theater, mm-hmm. uh, the Metro Cinema, uh, where we um, we just saw a, a documentary. Do you want to sort of set the stage a bit for Cunningham and who Cunningham was? Sure. So Cunningham is a documentary. I believe the year was 2018, um, and it's about Merce Cunningham, one of the sort of seminal modern dance choreographers in America. Um, he was taught by Martha Graham, part of the Martha Graham company, then started his own company. He ended up um, fostering dancers who went on, on to form their own companies, some very famous ones that we know of, um, like uh, Paul Taylor. Um, and uh, so the the piece, though, was introduced by um, a, uh, the documentary, I'm sorry, was introduced by a dance piece by Jen Mesh and Jerry Morita of Mile Zero Dance. Uh, and it was called Merce's Ashes. And it's sort of a personal response to Jen Mesh at one point being offered a packet of Merce Cunningham's ashes. Yeah, it's sort of like um, uh, their do movement, which I discovered is sort of very similar to Cunningham movement. Um, Mm -hmm. They're uh, both on stage. um, But it's this like voiceover we're hearing that's a conversation they have about uh, him and about his art and about dance art and like being able to watch things and then yeah this sort of like um, personal story <laughs> um, yeah about uh, being offered someone's uh, ashes and not knowing what to do in yeah. that situation and it kind of reflected the style of the film in that there was this um, there was a voiceover narration of kind of like personal response and personal reaction to things that were actually going on with seemingly very disconnected movement but as you heard the words you you your mind tries to make connections with what you're seeing too so you know they would talk about the the you know the Cunningham style the kind the you know like the the arms the long arms and the um the ballet legs right uh and it is yeah I I appreciated having a little bit of that sort of right up front movement taste before going into the film Mm -hmm. um and the film uh was I, I didn't know this going in, um, otherwise I would have brought my 3D glasses to just see. <laughs> um, but the film was shot so that it could be viewed in 3D. Um, and some of the scenes, the cinematography in it was really quite incredible, I thought. Um, it, like very, um, not only like big drone shots and everything over, you know, like rooftops in New York City with dancers dancing on them, um, but also through like scenes like like forest settings and interesting. And it, it really showed um, sort of the the very very cool can like um, modern art influence and visual art influence that Cunningham used in his work because he worked with people like um, uh, Robert Rauschenberg and um, Andy Warhol John to Cage and- yeah and John Cage musician um, John Cage was his partner for life um, so yeah but the 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 film focuses on his dances between 1942 uh, I think 1942 and 1972 yeah. so this 30-year span although Cunningham working until he was 90 years old and he died in 09 so Um, I thought it was interesting as a documentary um, it's a little abstract uh, in its structure like there isn't really an overarching uh, clear narrative that we keep going back to Um, we we understand we're like tracing this period Um, we're sort of given like a title card or two but then it's really just going between like archival clips of voices and images and then these like stagings of his dances which Mm -hmm. yeah are like set in places you don't typically see dance in the woods Mm -hmm. um on on rooftops like all these all these interesting places on what appears to be just like a large pointillism set Mm -hmm. um 
Or in these very, like, ornate mansions, like, going through hallways. and Like, dance that you could really only see on film. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for a dance film, I thought, you know, I often complain about how dance gets filmed. <laughs> okay. um, but this, you could, you really got a sense of what the dance was. You could see the full body in most of the shots. It was, um, and so, yeah, there's this contemporary company that is um, bringing life back to these Cunningham pieces. He choreographed, I heard, over 200 pieces in his lifetime. Time. And right. it's just, just like incredible. <laughs> yeah, and I thought, um, I thought I have no uh, understanding of him coming in. This is really harkening back to the beginnings of I don't get it, where I was like, <laughs> what is this? What is um, Merce cutting him? <laughs> and yeah, so as you sort of alluded to earlier, there's a little bit of talk of like he was interested like in the torso and upper body of modern dance, and in like the legs of ballet, mm-hmm. um, and that really put a very interesting sort of movement profile on everything and he was also like in in these clips and him talking it's very clear he's like oh I don't I'm not going to tell you what it means like it's not mm-hmm. about what it means it's you're going to have a reaction to it but I'm just doing it um, and so I thought uh, the movement uh, sort of reflected that in its way um, uh, it was sort of like there were parts of it that seemed recognizable but out of place for mm-hmm. me like where I've seen ballet and I've seen um, certain contemporary and modern modern works but it was like right it's kind of both at once mm-hmm. uh, and then also the fact that a lot of the music was either absent or abstract or non-traditional sort of soundscape or scores um, what you normally like use as something that guides like the emotional arc of your understanding of a piece isn't there which is interesting yeah I loved the way that he talked about um, interpretation of the dance because um, you know we often hear people say like oh this is like inter- is, what is that interpretive dance um, and it's kind of like he always left interpretation up to the viewer mm-hmm. there is one piece within the 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 documentary that was about he said yes it's about violence you can see that through the movement and the lighting and the music but the type of violence and how you react to that violence and the um, the actual take that the audience has on it is completely up to them still mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was really interesting the other interesting part that I thought about just because um, he worked a lot with not improvisation but with chance mm-hmm. um, and there was a really interesting um, part where it's uh, it was choreographed for five dancers and it shows him taking the notes of the piece and it they're based on he he choreographed it based on coin tosses mm-hmm. <laughs> right it's like three tosses and one means you move in this way one means you're either on stage or off and one means this other like mm-hmm. third quality of movement yeah which I thought was very just the illustration of that was like whoa it <laughs> was super frustrating to work with I don't know I, I mean I guess depending on like who you are as a, a dancer and a learner, um, just like someone who's like, well, you're just going to do this thing. Like there is this clip mm-hmm. in the the movie of him sort of like uh, explaining a movement passage to these two dancers. They, there's this really interesting fall they sort of do together and he's just sort of working through it. And um, uh, sort of after that, like some of the, the voiceover is about like frustration or, or things like that. Yeah. Um, but his thing was like he was interested in movement and he was just interested in like what... Uh, these things that happen. Um, mm. He's not interested in like prescribing it a narrative um, to like hang that on. It's just about like what is the body doing and what does that look like in this space or in these sort of abstracted costumes or set with this sort of way. Yeah, yeah. It was really just purely about dance, and and he and he made no no bones about it. Sort of one of the things I thought was really funny in Jen and Jerry's piece was that they said he kind of looked like the Grinch, mm. and then he comes on screen and you're like, oh yeah, you yeah. know he's got that very 
very like very sort of like defined almost like kind of like scowl mm-hmm. <laughs> a little yeah. bit um like but he you know because he's he's really examining things very closely um and they did i, I you know they did talk with some of his the dancers in his earlier company um the female dancers who did express a lot of frustration with like there's just like well I'll, i won't do it right anyway so you know right <laughs> yeah and it's interesting um there was also a lot about like it wasn't popular like he's mm-hmm. become this sort of legend but like um so much of the like critical assessment of what he was doing was like um people didn't want to engage with it they wanted sort of something else from it or they wanted something else from dance maybe um and there's like only little intermittent pockets of success Mm -hmm. um they go on a big sort of world tour and it's like britain loves them everything else is hit and miss yeah well and there by the end of the film it progresses starting into the early 70s when the real kind of um art world started to pick up modern like the the modern stuff like the Rauschenberg paintings and and his style and Mer- uh, Cunningham's style mm-hmm. of what he was doing um so yeah you know I guess it takes a while to to get people to you know sort of like jump on to a, a like an artistic trend but right. but that's how it always happens I guess <laughs> right 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 you're uncool until you're the toast of the town until you're uncool again maybe mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah things ebbs, ebbs and flows ebbs yeah. and flows Right. But it was a, yeah, I thought it was a cool. Um, as far as staging the dance, I thought it was um, an interesting way to give us an understanding of an artist and just like showing the works in really interesting ways mm-hmm. and and really well sort of thought out ways um, in terms of the choreography of the film itself. Yeah. Uh, and then yeah, it didn't really sort of like him I guess it didn't really project much outside onto it there were a few title cards of like yeah giving context sort of at the beginning and the end but the rest was like here's here's the collections of thoughts we have mm-hmm. here's some journal entries sort of written on there uh, and here's some voice and then here's some movement yeah did, did it make you think any differently about um, contemporary dance that you've that you've seen here in Edmonton um <laughs> did it um great question um I think um, it made me aware of like uh, how like someone like a choreographer's voice um, uh, can come through and like uh, I guess in this way it's so isolated like as it's going along we see nothing but his movement throughout the work but um, to see just like someone who is so singular in their vision uh, makes me think about other the some of the groups in town and and performers in town who do have this sort of like very specific vision and it's like cool that's his version of this mm-hmm. um, and what are the versions of that that appear today what are the like singular visions um, or not like uh, I feel like generally we're in like a very collaborative time in a lot of ways a lot of arts groups tend to work together mm-hmm. um, and so maybe it's not as esoteric as it would have been from the 40s to the 70s for him to be working with uh, you know, outsider painters and outsider musicians mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Yeah, but still be this like sole sort of like mastermind as the choreographer mm-hmm. and very um, very kind of like top down choreography. Like I, I do I, I, th- I agree that things are more collaborative and based on a lot more of the individual personalities that mm-hmm. you see in a piece now. So Yeah, yeah so that was, that was cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that was Cunningham. It's, uh, it was playing at Metro Cinema as part of the Female Gaze, which was uh, um, a, a series programmed to celebrate International Women's Day. Great. Yeah. All right. Um, how about we do another ad? 
This episode of I Don't Get It is brought to you by Snow and Tell, the Winter City podcast. You can't change the weather, but you can change how you feel about it. This podcast explores how the right attitudes can uncover the opportunities and potential in winter cities. You can find Snow and Tell on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at wintercityedmonton.ca slash podcast. Here's a quick taste of Snow and Tell. It's not a spoiler alert. Winter is going to be here for a good chunk of the year every single year. For some people, the very thought of winter is enough to send chills down their spine. But for others, winter is a season full of beauty, of adventure, of racing down the ski hill or snuggling by a roaring fire. I don't want to be inside during the winter. A season of contrast, light and dark, fire and ice, cold and warmth, a season full of potential. Part of the lighting design process is making the informed decision of not to illuminate something. If we have everything lit, then it just might look like a greenhouse where we're all tomatoes trying to produce work. And every day, more and more cities and people are coming around to seeing the possibilities of winter. The way that the city streets are being used is changing. I'm Sue Holdsworth. And I'm Isla Tanaka. Welcome to Snow and Tell, the Winter City Podcast. Together, we'll talk to specialists and thought leaders. We'll hear stories from everyday people just like you about their wintry trials and tribulations, triumphs and transformations. We can't change the weather, but we can change how we feel about it, how we design for it, play in it, thrive in it. I mean, we're all jubilant when we have a little exercise. We can hibernate or we can choose to change our thinking and actually plan to make winter a better experience for everyone. There is no such thing as bad weather. It's bad clothing. Join us as we learn how to make our cold cities cool. Find Snow and Tell, the Winter City podcast on your favorite podcast service or online at wintercityedmonton.ca slash podcast. I've learned over 70 years how you get along really well outside in Edmonton, no matter what the season is. And all of that after I was complaining about how cold it was, just walking these 20 feet to the car. Snow <laughs> and tell me about it. Um, all right, what's uh, what's coming up, Fonda? Let's look at the listings for the next little while. All right, well, Noises Off is still running at the Mayfield Dinner Theater until March 29th. Mm-hmm. Uh, As You Like It is uh, wrapping up at the Citadel Theater. It runs until March 15th. Uh, the Children uh, by Wildside Productions is playing at the Roxy on Gateway. That opens uh, the previous start on March 10, and it runs until the 22nd. Uh, Lab OM is being staged by Mercury Opera at the Citadel Theatre from March 5th uh, until the 14th. And ooh, next week, Edmonton Flamenco Festival, El Oruco, uh, is playing at the Winspear Centre. That's on March 13th. Bernstein's Candide, uh, by, uh, being presented by Edmonton Opera, is playing at the Jubilee Auditorium March 14th until the 20th. And the Garneau Block, the, uh, the the new Belinda Cornish play based on the novel by Todd Babiak, the serialized novel by Todd Babiak, uh, is running at the Citadel Theatre. That starts up previews on March 14th, and the run goes until April 5th. So, so yeah, that was a big week. Thank you again to the AGA for letting us jump in the hot tub and do all the, the splashing around in there. And yeah. Okay, go see some stuff. Bye. Bye. I Don't Get It is a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or check us out on albertapodcastnetwork.com or the CKUA radio app. 
I Don't Get It is recorded on Treaty 6 territory in Edmonton, Alberta, in the Edmonton Community Foundation's podcast studio. Our theme music is Mountain Time by Ghibli, and you can find more of Ghibli's music by going to ghibli.bandcamp.com. I Don't Get It is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blenov. 